Hi, everyone. Edric here from the Epic Podcast, the podcast where anybody can inspire everybody. This week, we've managed to invite Mr. Steve Sir, the CEO and co-founder of Flowship. Flowship provides fulfillment as a service from Hong Kong to the rest of the world uh, in a seamless and easy way for online retails and brand owners worldwide. Steve's going to be here to share a little bit more about his personal experiences in entrepreneurship, his journey, you know, all the way from the U.S., uh, to China, and finally based over in Hong Kong. And if this is your first time on this channel, please remember to comment, like, and subscribe to our videos and our channels. Thanks again. Maybe we could start from the beginning as well. Like, for example, uh, for those who are listening as well, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Flowship first. Yeah. Sure. Um, so yeah, Flowship, we are a, a tech-driven e-commerce logistics company. We're based um, here in Hong Kong. Um, so our clients are actually very global. Um, you know, it's not, you know, just the Hong Kong market. I would say even Hong Kong market is probably like 10% of our business in terms of clientele, uh, maybe even less than that. And, um, you know, basically if you're an online retailer selling your own products, you know, not really so much of like an Amazon seller or an eBay seller where you're relying on marketplace um, sort of uh, ads or, or listings, you know, uh, but you're more accountable for your own marketing and your branding. And so there's a lot of uh, brands that have migrated to Shopify, for instance, as a like a shopping cart software or like Magento or e-commerce, et cetera. You know, they're building their own brands. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's that's the that's the clientele that we really focus on. And you know, we're, we're trying to um, simplify a lot of their e-commerce uh, supply chain activities. Uh, we have our own uh, proprietary software where you can log in and understand all of your, your orders, your tracking statuses, your inventory levels. Um, you know, we have various integrations to, to various platforms. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you're doing e-commerce and, and you're trying to be a global brand, um, you know, you need to ship your orders, you know, all over the world or, or um, you need to have multiple warehouse locations. And so uh, Flowship, we have warehouses in Hong Kong, in, in Shenzhen, uh, in the U.S., in, in Europe or specifically uh, Lithuania right now. And then uh, sooner or later, we'll be launching in, in the U.K. Um, because Brexit going on, that's made things a bit more complicated. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, where we're, we primarily focus on providing services for, for online retailers and um, helping them scale up globally. Right. And now, um, when did you start Flowship? Yeah, we started in uh, 2015, February. So it's been about, uh, gosh, is that six years? Yeah, six years now. Yeah, um, but it feels like 10, though. <laughs> oh, oh uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, because the amount of work that you put in and, and the journeys, stories, whatever you go through, um, definitely feels like 10. Um, but, but yeah. Oh, so it's six years in the business. Now, um, I, I love to be able to do this with all my guests, which is really track back and really understand the stories. Because even though I would say that everybody's struggle is similar, but our stories are always so unique and, and different. I mean, um, you, you're, you're a Korean-American, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you were uh, born and bred in Penn State. Or, or Pennsylvania. Pe Pennsylvania. Yes, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. So, yes, that's right. So um, then you decided one day that, hey, I'm going to work in Asia. So how old were you then? And what exactly kind of led down led you down that road? Sure, sure. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was about 27 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I had 
you know, um, all of my experience basically in corporate America, um, believe it or not, I was in, um, you know, pharmaceuticals or, uh, or healthcare. Um, and, um, you know, I'm sure you know of the names like AstraZeneca now because of the vaccine. Yep. Uh, that was my first company I worked for. And then there was a more mid-sized pharmaceutical company called Shire that I worked for. And that was a total of about six, six years or so, um, including my, my internship experience, experience, even in health, healthcare. Um, but yeah, I mean, a very, um, you know, small potato, uh, you know, in a big company. For me, it was more like, I, I like, I like um, saying that, hey, I put in this amount of work and as, as, as a result, this is the these result that I was able to bring to the table. And I saw that, um, you know, China was really coming up and, um, you know, I have, I have a good like 30, 40 years of, of my, my career left, right? And, you know, this is no longer an, an economy where, you know, U.S. is superpower. Um, there was a very key stat that, that stuck with me. Um, it was actually one of the events that I that I put together. It was called um, uh, basically like doing business in, in China and, and India. Um, you know, it was just I was just so curious about it. Right. So why don't I just put an event together uh, and understand more about what it would be like to to actually work in China or understand a little bit more about the, the economy and business in China? So the words that stuck out to me was like, hey, you know, you're doing all this reading, you're doing this research on, on China and, and you know, this is why you're here at this event. Um, but, you know, what's most important is you got to go to China. You have to feel it. You have to see it for yourself. And, you know, when, when, when one of the speakers said that, 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 that spoke to me loud and clear. I was like, hey, I'm doing this event, but like, why am I not going there and, and exploring and understanding myself? Um, so, yeah, I took those words to heart and, and um, I, I actually um, left corporate America and I, I booked a, a three-week trip in, in Asia, uh, specifically in Shanghai and in Hong Kong. And um, yeah, that was just uh, groundbreaking for me because, you know, when you're in the U.S., you live, you, you live in this bubble. You think U.S. is the greatest, you know, you have the best life and all those things. But when I, as soon as I landed in Shanghai, I was like, wow, you know what, actually, this is a pretty internationally developed city. And this was back in, you know, 2011, right? Um, maybe in 2010. But, you know, even at that time, you know, you had a lot of, you know, expats working there. And um, I, I said to myself, you know what, I might not actually suffer by living here. Actually, I could, you know, get by and, um, you know, I was still, a, you know, a single guy. So I had like really nothing to lose. And so, yeah, that, that trip really opened my eyes. And, um, and actually, even during that time, I, um, there was an organization that I got involved with um, back in the U.S. called the National Association of Asian American Professionals. And I will not, um, you know, regret any moment that I spent. I mean, I, I feel like I've learned so much through that organization. I wasn't getting paid to, you know, be, to be involved, but I really um, was able to gr uh, get a great network of, of mm. professional people, mentors, leaders that I could just contact and say, hey, do you know anybody in Shanghai that I can meet? Um, just so I can understand a little bit more about how to do business in China or how you became successful in China. Um, and that's the same thing in Hong Kong. I, I had multiple meetings lined up and I'm just learning, right? Is this a place that I could really live and, and find myself being successful, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's what really gave me the confidence, uh, to be honest, to say, you know, I'm not just going out to China on a whim, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I didn't see what it's like and then I don't want to be surprised and have this culture shock of going to Asia. Actually, I did my research, not just like being in the U.S., but actually seeing it with my own eyes. And when I came back to the U.S., um, actually right before I came back to the U.S., when I was in Hong Kong, there was someone that was kind of 
you know, incubating or, or kind of getting her startup off the ground. And she said that, you know, she was looking for someone uh, with maybe business development experience. Frankly speaking, I had no business development experience. I was just a supply chain guy, but that's what I wanted to do. Right. Because when you're doing a startup, you're building um, and you have to, you know, you want to use your business sense a little bit more. And so I took that, I took that opportunity. I uh, worked pro bono even at home in the U.S. for about a good six months when I came back on that, that Asia trip. Um, but, you know, that was, you know, if anybody's even trying to venture into startups, um, I'd highly recommend getting some sort of experience yourself. You know, many people are like, oh, I'm getting this nice, um, I, get, I, get, I got a lucrative job, you know, I need to pay the bills or whatever. But, you know, if you, maybe if you have some savings, right, um, you could take a little bit of a leap of faith and do something to just get that experience of a startup. And then you'll maybe understand like, is a startup really for me? Can I do this? The other thing is you put, you put it on your resume and you know, um, you, when you interview with a startup, the fact that they seen you having startup experience really sticks out a lot, right? It's, it's, it's showing that you're willing to take risks. You're, you're, you really want to do a startup or get involved with a startup. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I really, um, you know, try to work on that, that, that startup um, for, for about a good six months. And then what I just realized is that if the, if the founder, if the team is really based somewhere else, like let's say in Hong Kong and I was in Philadelphia, you know, totally different time zones and you're not really as in, in, involved in the operations. For me, I just said, you know what, I, I, need, I need to move, right? I need to go to China now, right? So, um, so at the time, because I was still going off of my savings, I decided to uh, go to Shanghai instead of Hong Kong uh, because the cost of living in Shanghai is actually a lot less, mm -hmm. right? Um, I remember the founder at the time was like, hey, I found you uh, a 1500 US dollars per month apartment. Now, 1500 US dollars, even in the US is, is, is not cheap, right? You can probably find an apartment in the US. I'm not sure what it, go, what, what it goes for right now, but you can do it for like 500, $700 a month and, and live okay. And then thinking about tripling that or doubling that, right, in, in, in Hong Kong was just, huge for me. Um, so yeah, I went to Shanghai instead because we're still in the same time zone. Um, and yeah, the cost of living is, is a lot less. And um, I was still very, I, I wanted to get the practical China experience versus Hong Kong. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I um, moved to Shanghai. And um, as soon as I got there, frankly speaking, I just, I met a lot of people. Um, and even before I, I, I went to Shanghai, there was a um, college friend who actually was more of an acquaintance, but you know, you go to the Facebook and you see like, Hey, who's living in this city, whatever you reach out. And um, you know, this friend actually was um, I would say was very, very critical in terms of helping me um, sort of get my bearings, you know, going when I first landed in Shanghai, right? Like he allowed me to stay at his place, introduced me to his friends. Um, and then I just went from there. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's where it's kind of like it's on your own. Like, hey, you can get all of these introductions, but what are you going to do about them? Right. And so my first week in Shanghai, I met two very critical people, I would say, for my Asia journey. Mm -hmm. um, one of them helped me land my first startup, like official startup job in Shanghai. Right. So when I met him, I um, actually met him at a um, actually both of these gentlemen at a, um, at a Bible study. Right. And, um, you know, you don't really do these things in China so much, but, um, you know, one of them was, um, just selling his company to, um, 
well, 4PX, you know, the largest oh. uh, e-commerce, you know, logistics company uh, in China. Um, and the other one was a CEO of a digital marketing agency in Shanghai. And, um, you know, he was, he was Caucasian, right? Caucasian in Shanghai and doing the business. You don't see a lot of people doing that. You know, I was, I was really impressed by that. Um, and, uh, yeah, the other person that was selling his business at 4PX, um, he, he was a Taiwanese American and, um, you know, being an American and trying to sell your company in China is not, not very common either. Right. So, um, the first meeting I had was with the digital marketing head person. And, um, when I met with him, you know, of course I'm eager to find maybe another job that I can get paid for now. Right. And, um, when he was, he was kind of getting to learn, learn about me, he was like, you know, Steve, as much as you want to get involved in like business development or maybe in marketing, you see more of like a project manager type, you know, and, and honestly, I kind of took that a little bit to offense. I'm not mm-hmm. going to lie. Um, but, you know, it was okay. I mean, like, I, I'll take that feedback. And then, you know, the funny thing was, you know, we had that, you know, sort of interview on a, on a Thursday, maybe around like a Saturday or Sunday, he gets back to me. He's like, hey, you know what? My friend is looking for a business development person for the Korea market. And it's a startup that's sort of taking off here in, in China. I was like, okay, well, you're, you're sharing me this business development opportunity. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely interested. And so uh, I, I interviewed for that job on, um, I think it was a Monday, no, sorry, on a Tuesday. Uh, and then I passed that. And then immediately the person was like, hey, I want you to meet with the CEO the following day and um, met with the CEO for about 20 minutes. And he pretty much gave me the job on the spot. Right. Um, so, so that was my first sort of taste of uh, a real startup that was backed by uh, Sequoia Capital at the time. Mm. Um, and um, actually, the, the company was, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure if you heard of Birchbox, but it's a subscription, a subscription box company uh, filled with like cosmetics, you know, samples and things. And, you know, you get a, a monthly box of, uh, of these, um, you know, these cosmetic samples right. or products. Um, and so we were the first movers to bring that model in, into China. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was accountable to bring cosmetics products and uh, Korean products and Japanese products into the China market. And I don't know anything about cosmetics at the time, um, but I, I learned a heck of a lot um, and connected with a lot of the, the big uh, companies like uh, L'Oreal. Um, in Korea, there's a company called Amore Pacific. Um, learned, learned, learned a heck of a lot. Um, but for me, it was more... I was learning so much about what a, a real startup is like, even working with a lot of, you know, Chinese colleagues, maybe about like four months in of, of joining that startup, um, it actually exited uh, to a company called Jume.com. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was my first sort of startup taste uh, of, of being in China. And so after the company exited, I had to figure out what do I do next, right? And that's where I... Um, got involved with 4PX actually. <laughs> and then uh, after 4PX, once you uh, uh, finished that tour already, what was it that you all of a sudden you just went, hey, look, uh, yeah, I should, I can start something up or there's something I can do better. Was it, was it that mentality that you're doing this, but I can do it better? You know, the, definitely. Um, when, when I was working at 4PX, um, I felt like, I mean, it was just remarkable how they were the largest um, e- cross-border e-commerce logistics company, like, you know, in the world. Um, at the time when I first joined, they were doing about 150,000 parcels per day. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, when I left, which was about three years after they were doing about a million parcels per day. 
right? Just growing so fast. But it was kind of strange to me in some ways because, um, you know, the, their focus on technology, while they, they had a lot of engineers, I feel like they were, they're so focused on hiring uh, like cheap people, like trying to try and get the most bang for their buck. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I feel like that strategy sort of, you know, you're only going to get so far with your, with your tech and you're going to have a lot of maybe issues that, that may happen with your tech. Um, and, um, you know, they really relied on manual labor to sort of scale up their volume. Um, but if you really, really rely on manual labor, then there's, there's, you're prone to a lot of errors and issues along the way. Um, the other thing that I noticed was, um, they had an international sort of sales sales team. And, um, there was a time when, um, when I, you know, I was working in the overseas BD team with, in, in Shanghai, uh, with that, with that boss I, I mentioned earlier, um, who's, who is my mentor as well. But he actually left the company after about a year and, um, the company just was trying to figure out like, okay, what do I do next? Do I maybe take his job or, uh, do I, do I go to Shenzhen and basically, uh, help incubate a, a startup within the company? Um, so for me, of course, like, you know, I, I wanted to, to incubate, right. I wanted to just learn and get the most experience, um, as possible and even be in headquarters in Shenzhen. What I realized was, um, the company wasn't also so focused on the service quality aspect. And when you're working with international, uh, clients it's particularly if they're based in the U S and Australia or, or UK or wherever their, their expectations in terms of service are very different, right? For PX, they had about 30,000 30, different online sellers selling on Amazon or eBay, um, but they're mostly Chinese, right? And Chinese people, what they really care about is price. That's the number one factor by a wide, wide margin, okay? But Western clients, of course, they care about price, but maybe similarly comes the service quality and maybe even t- t- the, the technology. Like these three things basically have to go hand in hand. And so that was the missing sort of ingredient I saw at 4PX. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what the light bulb moment for me. Um, it's, it's, I believe you can provide a much better service to, to fill the needs of this particular demographic. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what we, um, and that's what, that's what led to Flowship, um, you know, to, to build a company that is focused on technology, one, um, really don't take that lightly at all. Hire great engineers to build a great product. Uh, and number two, it's uh, the customer service aspect, right? Um, make sure your clients don't go around in circles trying to uh, find an answer for something, you know, um, and also provide them with timely responses, at least with 20, within 24 hours. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, those are the two main pillars um, that, we, that we focused on Flowship. Right. And then when you had that idea, I mean, were there a couple of people that you reached out to and said, hey, look, I can't do this by myself. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you're you're not exactly, you know, doing all the programming and, and the development yourself, but um, guiding that, that direction along, you know, having that clear vision. But did you have to amass a number of people to get that done? And how did you work that out, like step by step? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate, you know, I, I feel like my my the earlier part of my journey in asia i I just had so many sort of these like i feel like fate moments um whenever i felt like a door was closing or i wasn't sure you know something just opened up um so you know i believe like during my like you know ending days at at 4px um i made a trip to hong kong 
because my boss at the time at 4PX was said, um, Steve, there's, there's a guy that's coming to town, you know, he's from the US, you know, he's arguably the largest drop shipper in the US. His name was Jeremy Hanks. He's coming to town, like you got to go. Um, at the time, however, uh, I was on a dual entry visa. Um, I had a working visa in China, but unfortunately the HR department kind of slipped there and, and I ended up getting a dual entry visa. So I used the first one. And then the second one, I was just reserving for emergency purposes, right? Like, although I really wanted to meet this guy, uh, I couldn't risk it. But on that, on the day, on the same day that the event was happening, my boss comes to me again. He said, Steve, you, you got to go. I, I, th- I think, I think this is a really great opportunity for you. So, so I, so I said, all right, I'm, I'm, I'll go, right. Just leap of faith. I'm going. And so we get, we get to Hong Kong and, um, you know, the, the Jeremy Hanks is there and it was about 12, 12 people, all like industry sort of experts in, in e-commerce or in this drop shipping space. And that's where I met my, um, my, my business partner. Um, and, um, I found out as we're doing the round table introductions, we were doing similar things. And so it was more like, Hmm, maybe we should build the largest drop shipping company in the world. That was basically our idea. You know, once again, like I really felt like it was a fade thing. Um, I, I probably shouldn't have been at that event. Um, but I went. All right. Then after that, then came the tough question, right? Who's going to come up with the money? What's going to happen there? So how, how'd that go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we, we were originally um, bootstrapping the business a bit, a bit. And so um, we we're actually profitable from from day one. Um, so we could have continued to, um, you know, bootstrap the, the, the business. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, there was just so much demand in what we're doing because, you know, these Western Island retailers, they couldn't find anybody that can really trust in the ground. Um, but of course, you know, if you really, if you want to accelerate this business, um, it's something that, you know, as a first mover sort of advantage, you want to sort of capitalize on that and try to, you know, uh, grow and, and, and invest in the technology as much as you can. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's where I think about six months in, uh, frankly speaking, like, although we were incorporated and we say we started in February, 2015, we were actually sort of working on this as a project in around the summer of 2014 and seeing if this, this idea or this model could really work. And so, you know, six months profitable, you know, gaining a lot of traction, and so that's where, you know, we really had a pitch, you know, to go out to investors. And it was pretty, pretty simple pitch. I mean, um, I would say the, 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 well, the first investor, you know, is always the hardest, you know, to, to get someone that, you know, sort of understands what you're doing. Fortunately, we had, you know, one of the, the investors um, that had some supply chain or e-commerce background. And so he was able to bring that knowledge to his firm mm. and, and was the first investor. And then after that, it just, you know, it was just really easy, you know, people were like, oh, okay, if someone's getting into it, then I want to get in, into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that first round uh, was, um, yeah, pre-series A seed round uh, for about 1 million US dollars. And um, yeah, so for sort of my, my first taste in terms of getting any sort of VC funding. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a surreal moment. Um, you know, getting 1 million US dollars in your bank account, like that's, you know, that's really cool. You know, um, not many people now, now, now it's like, zeros, you know, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, most of the time we just see a zero and that's about it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah so but, just have this one lump sum payment to your account napping out of nowhere. It's like, it's wow. Like, yeah. Did you go to the market while you were bootstrapping with an MVP or 
what did you actually qualify as your MVP? Working prototype, uh, something that was actually tested in the market, or could you show the full system of exactly what you already knew it could do? Gosh, you know, and I mean, thinking about that, those times, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm like cringing a little bit right now uh, because, yeah, we were so basically. Oh, I mean, we didn't even have our own software at the time, right? We were we were basically leveraging, you know, bits and pieces off of um, NetSuite, uh, you know, basically ERP software, and um, you know, taking um, you know scripts and um, you know putting uh, you know things together. Um, so there are a lot of things that we even relied on on people to sort of even uh, you know like shipping labels, right? Like they would manually write write the name of or copy and paste names and addresses onto the shipping label and um you know get the get the orders out right and so um yeah i mean we're we were just working off excel files you know here and there um try to be somewhat system driven by um you know having our orders maybe uploaded into our software but um yeah we 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 really didn't have a um you know, a, 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 prop, a product or a software at the time. It was just um, hacking together, you know, a software that, that's already on the market. Right. And you actually brought this particular product, you know, in the early days to, uh, to one of those companies and they just went absolute flat no. So at the end of the day, um, when, when those things happen, do you take it back and still believe that your product is, it can be what it, it you know, it, it's going to be something? Or do you actually go that this guy is, he doesn't know what he's talking about? What was the approach well, at the time? Um, you know, that, that, that wasn't so, um, you know, concerning for me because it only motivated me to, uh, you know, start investing in your own sort of R&D and, and, and technology. And that's what we did with the $1 million, right? We, we hired our first, you know, developers um, and, and started to build a, a product or a UI, UX that clients can now log in and have sort of full visibility as to what's going on. And now we're even integrating with your website so that orders can automatically come into our portal versus you taking a CSV file and uploading into our system. Right. right. And so, um, you know, I mean, all those times, I mean, it's, it's a learning experience. You hear the feedback that you're hearing from the clients and um, saying like, oh yeah, like, you know, it'd be great if you can just connect with my system and I don't have to worry about these manual, you know, uploads. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about, um, you know, which shipping carrier I need to, I need to ship with for this order, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so yeah, we took that feedback and we put it back that, put that back in the product. But I think, um, before we raised cash, we just, yeah, we had an MVP, you know, something good enough that we can serve clients, make decent amount of money, make profit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just getting better, you know, from there. And on the note of hiring, I, I, I find it very, very um, difficult to actually process this. Um, you know, when you're first starting out and you go, okay, we set this up, we got this doing, and we're getting the MVP up and everything. At the same time, right, for improvement, or at least to even build it up further, how do I even get that first hire in that sense? Because if I don't even know how to do it, how do I ask if somebody in the market kind of knows how to do this and could join me? You know, um, and that's a, that's a very good question because I think, you know, earlier on as, as, as an entrepreneur or startup founder, trying to find the right person or the right hires, it's, it's, it's something that is very hard to learn in the beginning. It's, it's mm -hmm. like, it's hard to hit the jackpot in the beginning yeah. because, um, 
you know, when you're earlier on, you, you, some, you, you may think you know what you want, but then once you get the person, you're like, oh, okay. Okay. So this person doesn't really fit the culture. doesn't really work like a starter person. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, there, you know, it would be nice to have like a finance person on the team. Right. Um, and so we decided to go, go pretty big. Um, and he was the CFO of, 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 uh, the finance department managing 200 people. And so of course you're thinking, oh, wow, like this person is so connected in the, in the, in the logistics world or freight forwarding world. Um, but, um, you know, when you're, when you're doing a startup, you have to get your hands dirty. Like you're, you're really building something new, like a new mm-hmm. finance software almost even because, you know, you, you have to figure out how to link finance with, with the logistics or the operations that we're doing and try not to make it so complex. Um, and then building processes and not relying people on people so much uh, to do a lot of the work. Um, so, so, so yeah, I mean, um, when we hired the person, we're hiring, you know, like eight or nine people on the finance team and the sales team maybe has like four or five, you know, does that make sense? Right. Um, finance should probably be like maybe three to five, you know, of your startup. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where we understood it's not, not, not the culture fit. And, um, we like people that are, you know, like to get their hands dirty, build processes are efficient and, um, you know, I think in a startup, you, you, you have to kind of, you learn how to work faster, right. right. And, and, and be more efficient. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it takes time, you know, to really understand if, if, if the, that, that person is the right fit. And even today, you know, I, I'm going to admit it, it. It's hard. It's hard to really nail down like the hiring, um, until they actually work with you. And so one thing that we do is, um, well, it's more of an Asia thing and I love it. U.S. doesn't really have this, is having a probation period, right? You have a mm. three-month probation period, sort of test the waters. Um, if, if you don't like the person, you can move on from them. If they don't like you, they can move, from, move on from you as well with a very mm. short notice period. Um, so, 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 yeah, I mean, th- that's, that's really the, the testing period, and they pass the test, and they continue working for us. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, to kind of going back to your question during the early days, um, you know, we, we knew that getting a CTO was very important. Um, so at the time, um, I was just going through my Rolodex of, 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 of friends and even relatives. Mm. And, um, fortunate thing was my close cousin, uh, was a software engineer, uh, for Etsy, uh, which is like the handcrafts marketplace. So she was already in e-commerce and, um, yeah, she, she became our first, uh, you know, CTO and, uh, yeah, very, very, uh, grateful for that one. Um, and then we started having our, our first engineering team. And so, yeah, that, that's, that was like our beginning days of having our, our, our portal so they can automate a lot more activities for our clients. So in your experience, every CEO has that magic question during the interviews, you know, to, to kind of have that yay or nay factor. What's your magic question? I mean, I, th- I think there's, there's, there's a few out there, but, um, you know, what, what um, or have, have, you, have you dealt with, you know, any sort of adversity and, and what was that, um, that, that particular moment um, or what was the, uh, the moment that, that you've been, went, been, went through so much adversity, but you were able to overcome that. I think the DNA and the perspective of a, of a flowship person, um, you know, you, you have to be, you know, very resilient. Um, and so that, that, that question to me is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very important for me to understand. Right. And uh, I mean, th- here you are, you're, it seems like it's very, very much pegged onto the comp- company culture that you've 
kind of determined with uh, your partners and yourself, you know, but uh, do you think that that was something that you've set since day one or it's something that was built and molded along the way and everybody kind of like, oh, this is how the mojo is? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I have my sort of key values, right? Like, mm. I think it's it's important for you to understand well, maybe what are even your own personal values first, right? So my, my personal values was always going to build a company that was um, that had integrity, um, very transparent. Um, you know, always thinking about being proactive uh, versus reactive. Um, so those were some of the, the 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 key things that I knew sort of earlier on. It was always in my head, um, but yeah, maybe in hindsight, if I ever start a new startup, I would have maybe some some values that I would want to you know set in stone and make it very clear to the, to the staff when they're starting with us. Um, but you know, the interesting thing was because we felt like culture became really really important around 2017, like two years after uh, we we launched Flowship. That's where we came up with our Flowship Culture Deck, right? So um, you know we have about eight or nine different sort of you know uh, values that we put in there and we kind of explain you know what particular of each value means. And so now every staff that joins us, they read the culture deck, they understand what Flowship is about. But uh, the other thing that we're seeing is that over time, your culture or your values start changing as well, right? Or maybe there's something else that you want to add that you're seeing and you're like, you know what, we need to, you know, ingrain some of these values or principles as well. And so that's what I did even last year. Last year, I I added ownership, right? It's It's like, I feel like when people work in your company, it's like they they just work like an employee. So they don't mm-hmm. really care so much. They work their nine to five or whatever and, and just contribute. But I think, you know, for, for our company, you know, I want to see more ownership because, you know, I, I try to to ingrain a, a very family culture here at Flowship. Um, and so if you're a family, like anything, even when any mistakes that go on, you know, it's all a part of ours. It's not your mistake, it's our mistake, right? Um, I even had an uh, award last year called the biggest mistake of the month award. Yeah, we don't have it today, but you know, I mean, I just wanted to is, is this you a just put it out there. Where you go, shame, <laughs> shame, shame. I, I guess I guess you could say yeah, something like that. But but we wanted to make it a little more light, right? Like we wanted to say, hey, it's okay, it's okay to make mistakes, right? It's you know. Um, and if, we, and, and if we know what that biggest mistake is, we're all going to learn together what that mistake was and how we're going to solve and improve on that going forward, right? So that, that makes sure that everyone else going forward, like, oh, I don't want to make that big, big mistake again. But it's this, it's, it's, it's this whole family thing. It's okay mm-hmm. to mention mistakes. And the other thing that happens is when you're doing an operations-heavy business, people can sort of hide. Right. It's like, oh, I know that made this mistake, but I don't want to flow with it up and I don't want to get embarrassed. Mm. But what happens in that situation is that small mistake becomes a, a much bigger and bigger and bigger mistake as the time goes by. Yeah. And, and eventually that mistake will surface in itself because, you know, we're an operations company. You're going to see every little thing mm. that goes on. The results will be found out. Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, another key principle that we added into the culture that, you know, starting last year. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's good to sort of understand where you are as a company. And I think over time, you know, there may be certain, certain values or cultures that, that may start popping up. Um, but I, I think, you know, now that we're about six years in, we're, we, we pretty much understand our identity now and what's, what's really important from a DNA standpoint from our staff. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it, it does sort of uh, pop up over over time. Right, fantastic. I mean, I can sense a lot of passion for for what you have, you know, in the business and how much you've invested into it. At the same time, I, I do have this um, conundrum that I, I always face is that um, in a business, right, there's there's one camp that goes, my passion is my business. On the other hand, is that, um, you know, I'm building a business to fuel other passions. For example, uh, because I am passionate about this particular subject, I can make it into a business. Whereas the other side of it is that I'm building a business that can fuel or support my passions. So somewhat like a partly a social enterprise to give back, or is it something that I know that is I, what I love and then money follows? Or is it because I know that this makes money, I do it and then I can bring it to something else that needs the money? Yeah, you know, that, that's that's a very good question. Um, I, I would say that, yeah, definitely do something that you're passionate about, but at the same time, are you good at that? Do you have mm-hmm. skill sets? Like, are you like the top one to 5% of doing that particular job or work? Um, and then the second thing, I mean, of course, when you're doing a startup and, you know, the words are, the keywords are for profit, right? It's not nonprofit, mm-hmm. right? So you have to think about, do I have a business case? Do I have a business model? Yes, I'm passionate about something, but is this something that's going to make money, right? Okay, if, okay, it could, it could make money, but then what is my my business model? It better make sense. I, I'd love to give an example. Like, um, I guess uh, it's not exactly startup oriented, but think about it. Someone like uh, like a professional athlete or, or musician or something, right? They're really good at that particular skill. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, they're really passionate about it. But on top of that, they're, they're very fortunate that they can make a lot of money by doing that, partic- that particular activity. Mm-hmm. Right? But on, on, the, on the flip side, if, you're, if you're, you can be really passionate about something and you can be really, really good at something, right? But is there a, a, a path or is there, do you already know that doing that particular job, you can make a lot of money doing that? Would you say that you're not passionate about logistics? Because, you know, you know your business inside out. Like what you said is great. You're a logistics and supply chain expert, right? At the same time, would you say that logistics is your passion or is it because of the people that, that are your passion or, or the, being in a leadership position or, and, and bringing joy to those people is your passion? So that's, that's something that I've, I've been toying with, you know, the last couple of months as well, you know, thinking through a number of things. Yeah, I would say... Um... I mean, in terms of like my passions, like what am I thinking about? Like, I love, I love sports. I love, um, you know, I love, I love reading. Uh, I love music, you know, but, you know, but there's also the aspect of, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the people, you know, being able to connect with people, being able to help people. Um, so, you know, through Flowship, you know, I'm able to do that, right. Taking a, an industry, that is, um, you know, I would say that there's a lot of sort of, you know, cutting corners or, or corruption, I think, in logistics. Um, but I want to be able to sort of take the take, bring more of the good, you know, into the industry. And I feel like in order to do that, um, well, you have to be relevant as a company, of course, but, you know, having great people that sort of uh, are contagious um, and, and, um, you know, they start seeing that, you know what, Flowship people are all, you know, just, you know, great human beings. And, um, and, they, and then logistics companies are therefore able to understand, like, 
you don't have to cut corners. You don't have to be corrupt in order to be successful. Like you can actually lead a company that has full of, you know, integrity and great people um, and, and be successful. Um, and that's what I'm really passionate about, to be honest. I mean, when I think about everything, it, it's, it's really bringing about more good, you know, in this industry, in the overall startup community, you know, even in China, there's so much corruption that goes on there, you know, and so just being, you know, a shining light, you know, and, and being a good example uh, in the community. Yeah. So that means that you could start up several different companies if you wanted to, but it's all, it could be in so many different industries, but ultimately it's, it's always about that. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for sure. Um, you know, I mean, of course you have to understand a bit about what you're trying to solve mm -hmm. or what, what startup you're going to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I really love the people aspect of, of doing the startup. And I think, you know, uh, you know, people is, 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 is 80%, 80 of, um, of, of doing this. And, um, you know, what really motivates me, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm always thinking about people, you know, uh, going through each day, I'm thinking, looking around and, you know, how do I, how do I motivate this person or how do I help this person? You know, that's, that's what makes, makes, makes things exciting. And then being able to see this, you know, company really flourish, yeah. um, you know, through all that, though, though, that work, um, does it you get know, too that's... emotionally draining? Like, say, for example, that, that uh, if a staff is really having challenges, you know, on a personal level, does that end up, do you get too emotionally and personally invested in these things? That can sometimes also be a challenge, right? Uh, between that, that um, work and or professional and personal boundaries, right? For sure. For sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I think when you're, when you're a startup uh, entrepreneur or a founder, I mean, just, just one warning, you know, if I could provide anyone is, you know, uh, think about, are you someone that is like mentally, uh, like patient or enduring, resilient, you know, these are, you know, certain things that I've even mentioned in terms of fellowship values, but I do think it resonates across the startup community because there's just so many things that goes on, right. From a people standpoint, oh my, I mean, the things that I've learned from a people standpoint, yes, there's been some bad things that I had to deal with as well. Right. I, I had to deal with, um, you know, maybe letting go people, but then that turning out to be a negative thing because they try to do something against you because you laid them off. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, th those aren't fun. Um, and then you have people that are dealing with certain things, you know, um, you know, maybe like I, I have an assistant who, um, you know, who's who's uh, who's in the process of having a second child. But, you know, having some complications there, you know, with, you um, you know, with, with, with some, some bleeding and, and such, you know, and, and, and it's like, you know, it affects her, you know, overall mm. mental state and, um, you know, it, it, of course it affects me as well. Right. So, mm. um, but you know, th these are things where like you sort of build this sort of, um, I don't know, like uh, maturity or, or like sort of maybe even a shell, right. Like you got to say like, you know what, there's better days ahead. You know, I mean, you, whenever there's a bad day, better days ahead, better days ahead. Right. And always trying to think positive. And the other thing that's very important, I think, is, you know, there may be people in your company that have a negative sort of mentality, like constantly. Right. And that negative mentality, because you're you're interfacing with that person almost on a daily basis, it starts getting to you. Mm. You know, it, it starts taints your your view on the company. It, it takes away from your confidence and things like that. And what my recommendation when you go through those situations is, um, 
try to <laughs> either find a way to get that person to, to be a little bit more positive, but it's probably not going to be the case because you can't really change people. Um, it's probably best to, to move on. Mm. Right. Um, and, and as a CEO, as a founder, confidence is so key. If you have someone that's constantly sort of bringing you down, don't let that person get out of your way. Right. And, and you want to continue to sort of bring that positive energy, not only for yourself, but for the rest of your staff, because you'll understand that as being a CEO, like whatever, how you feel, the emotions that you bring into the room, how you communicate to them, it's contagious. Mm. Right. And so that's something like that can be a blind spot for a lot of CEOs. Um, But, you know, I I think it's very uh, important for your mental state to always be in check Um, because if you don't really have this, um, and, and even from a health standpoint, like maybe you want to understand your health isn't the greatest, po- greatest place. It's probably not the best idea to do a startup. <laughs> I really right. it's think true. And, and speaking of health, I mean, uh, you're, you're very active, I have to say, with uh, so many things. How do you, uh, so what's your daily routine like in terms of keeping your mental and your physical health like? If you're going through, you know, a lot of stress or, you know, difficult moments, uh, you know, in, in your startup, uh, there's no better way to just let it out, you know, through doing some heavy weights. Also, um, well, non-pandemic times, I, I'm I'm involved in uh, flag football, mm. so um, more flag American. Football, by the way, for those who are yeah uh, not familiar, yeah. So I'm sure everyone's aware of uh, American football, where you wear the pads and you, mm. you have the I don't even, what, what do you what do you call it? like a uh, I can't even describe the shape like an oval sort of shape yeah. ball, almost like a rugby ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Super Bowl, of course, is, is the big, 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 uh, time for it. Um, speaking of which Super Bowl is tomorrow. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so there's the tackle version of it where you kind of get a little more physical and contact, maybe even right? hurt someone full contact, but flag football is where maybe you're wearing a belt and then there's like, uh, uh, flags, you know, that, oh. that are attached to the belt. And so if someone were to take off one of those flags, then you're down, right? Okay. You can't move anymore. Right. And then you go to the next play. Right. So it's less physical contact. It's a little bit more related to like, you have to be fast, I guess, right. if you, if you're running the ball. Um, but yeah, I mean, the rules, same rules apply, catch the ball, run the ball, right. get a touchdown, right. you know, things like that. And, uh, and believe it or not, actually, I actually view this as therapeutic. I do, I do work on weekends. Okay. Yeah. Now, you're in the office on a Sunday, dude. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So I do tend to work at least one out of the two days, maybe sometimes even two out of the two days on the weekends. The reason why I do that is because I find it um, when you have no distractions going on, right? You don't have staff coming up to you to uh, address a certain question. Um, You don't have phone calls going on, you know, throughout the day, Um, you know, just distraction free being able to do work that you may not have been able to do. And then you're looking ahead of the week and then trying to just stay ahead um, and, and, you know, game plan um, and do certain things uh, so that the, you're, you're, you're ready for the week. Um, I, I just find those times very peaceful and, and therapeutic, believe it or not, because the less sort of emails or things I have in my inbox, I'm a lot more sort of relaxed as I go into my Mondays. Right. So Something else I do. I'm not sure if that's a it's a great tip, but it works for me. Um, <laughs> so feel free to try it yourself. Time management for you. Uh, question: uh, Do you 
chunk your activities into blocks or do you have hourly schedules for yourself? Great question. Um, so usually I, I try to leave my lunch hours free. I try not to have any, you know, meetings or anything during that time because that's my break time, right? It's like I got through my half day, you know, try not to bother me during lunch. Um, I'm, I'm there spending time with my staff, you know, having lunches. I try to do that as much as I can. I try not to have too many meetings, by the way. Okay. And I'm trying to remember which uh, entrepreneur is Elon Musk that does this as well. Um, but, you know, don't have meetings just for the sake of having meetings, right? Um, if you're doing, if you're, if you're conducting a meeting, make sure that there is an outcome at the end of it. And also make sure that the meeting is as efficient as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So every meeting should have an agenda, mm -hmm. right? And what are you trying to achieve uh, during that meeting? Um, so, so even my, my, my leaders meetings, right? I mean, I would say a lot of companies probably do it on a, on a weekly basis, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, I have it on a biweekly basis. And so the reason why I do that is because, you know, uh, maybe the middle of the month is sort of like your checkpoint. It's like, hey, how am I doing on my KPIs? And another thing that we've um, done here at Flowship is we, we've organized what's called OKRs or objectives and key results. Um, so, you know, we're very focused on, hey, what's most important? Focus on those, right? What's your objective? How are you going to hit those targets, right? That, that's all that really matters to us, right? Um, and yeah, those, those, those midweek, that midweek chip point, we're understanding how we are in our OKRs, on our KPIs. What do we need to do to, in order to hit those targets by the end of the month, right? And then the end of the month, where maybe the, 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 the first couple of days of the following month, we're reviewing how we performed in, in, in the previous month. I have an assistant, by the way, a virtual assistant. Hmm. So that's another trick or a hack, I think. Um, you know, ever since I had a virtual assistant, um, you know, she takes a little care of a lot of my, my administrative work, you know, all the dirty work that you don't really, that takes a lot of your time um, and, and doesn't really take a lot of like brain power to do. She handles that. Um, and I'm just able to focus on the, on the bigger picture, you know, and, and, you know, trying to, you know, take this company forward with focusing on the bigger things, bigger problems. Um, and, and that's what I even, even challenge my, my leaders as well. It's like, you know, if it's something that you probably can solve yourself, it's probably a good idea that you don't bring it up to me, right? So mm. that's another thing, right? I mean, as a leader, people always want to seek your advice and, and want to get things done. Um, but, you know, you want to empower your people as much as possible um, as well, challenge them. And so um, once again, you know, as CEO or a founder, you have to figure out how can I always you know, focus on, on the bigger things, um, you know, in the company. And as you've grown your company, right, you've gotten more staff. Again. Um, one of the things I've always wondered was, how do you maintain an open door policy? The biggest question, right, in every company that I've always worked with was that you, you've always got this group of people that believe that it's, it's not, nobody's going to listen to me anyway, you know, even if I bring it up. So I'll just bring it up in a peer level. Right. But um, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, it wasn't it's, it's always shared. Oh, my door is always open. You can always come in. But at the end of the day, you know that nobody's going to walk into that door. And yet it also comes across as in it's OK if nobody walks into my door. You, you know, you've, you've seen it for yourself. So how do you keep an open door policy in your own company? You know, that, that's that's a very, very good question. Um, and people say, oh, I have open door policy. But then they're wondering, like, why well, half don't people of come bullshit. to me? We know that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I, honestly, I don't, I don't feel like there's any escaping that, um, you know, that people may not come to you just because you're 
the boss or just you're the you're, you're the CEO. Um, personally, like that's I don't I don't like that feeling. Um, but you know, it's just something that you can never get away get get away from. But in order to sort of encourage that more, I would say that you know, as a as a as a CEO or, or a founder, you you have to um, sort of get away from being this like I'm the boss or I'm the leader, like my way or the highway, like kind of mentality, right? Um, sort of take down your ego, you know, it's some, you know, as, as a founder, it's probably tough to do that because you started this business, you know, you took the risk, you know, you have a lot of confidence as it is, right? But right. you have to learn how to do that. And mm-hmm. so what are the things that we do here? Um, well, like I said, I, I do lunches with my staff, like mm-hmm. I would say four out of five days during the week. I really do. Um, and that's me being very relational and, and, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to have people even sitting next to me as we have these lunches. <laughs> like, you know, that's 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 a good thing. And and the other thing is, um, you know, even just this uh, past Friday, um, you know, we actually almost every after every Friday we'll have like what we call like a social hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, one of the one of the big games right now on your mobile device is called Among Us. Yes, I, I don't know if you heard of that. So yeah, we had a, a team Among Us outing right and and um you know played till like 9 9 p.m at night you know in the office you know we had a couple of drinks you know and and pizza um and i was playing with them right um and then the other thing that i do more on a a company-wide thing uh, and, and this is the i guess the, one of the beauties of the pandemic um is having company virtual social hours right and i do this um i used to do this on a weekly basis and then i was like oh my gosh this is too much um, then I dialed it back to a biweekly basis. Um, now it's a monthly basis because it just, it takes a lot of work to actually prepare for these events. Yeah. Um, but that, that allows me to say, you know, interact with all the staff in the company. You know, it's not even just like a, um, it's not even just like a networking thing. Like you're just mm-hmm. talking, right. We'll even play games during those social hours. Um, and I, I would even, you know, talk to each person or call people out and, and talk to them and, you know, it's, it's about being relational, you know, mm-hmm. bringing that family culture, as I mentioned, you know, in Flowship. And, um, you know, honestly, I mean, there's still a lot of, lot of things that we need to do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to sort of get that, that people element, you know, in a company. Um, you know, I'll give another example. Like we're even doing a, um, a camping trip uh, probably at the end of the month or early March. And what better way to be really intimate with people uh, in a camping trip where basically have no choice but to be with each other for like, you know, a day and a half. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but you know, that's, that's team building, right. It's, it's family building. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that encourages more of the open door sort of policy that, that you're looking for. Uh, we're just going to close off uh, this segment, right. And move on to the last segment of the podcast known as the Epic questionnaire. So basically these are just a rapid fire question uh, session with you. And uh, okay. yeah, so you can just answer as you please. All right, as quickly okay. as you can. All right, so Steve, sir, with the epic questionnaire, are you ready? Yes. All right. One word that you love the most? Uh, baby, uh, because it's my, my wife. I call her baby. Oh, I sure. thought you are going to have one. So. <laughs> hmm. Okay. No. <laughs> one word that you dislike the most? I can't. Something like that. If you could have a conversation with one person, fictional, non-fictional, dead or alive, who would that be? Abraham Lincoln. What do you say to yourself in the mirror every morning? I can do this. Favorite dish to eat? Uh, Korean food. It's called sundubuchige. Ah, it's like uh, the, the spicy tofu soup. Tofu soup, yeah. 
favorite travel spot or the next travel spot uh, once borders open up? Mm. Uh, I've been to um, somewhere called Punta Cana, which is in the Dominican Republic or the Caribbean um, Ocean. Uh, to this day, the best beach that I've been to, white sand, clear waters. I uh, wish I could find that somewhere in Asia. If, you, if anyone knows, please let me know. I'd be there. <laughs> Something um, that you've always wanted to do, but have yet to do so. Uh, I would love to um, maybe go to Antarctica uh, and just explore and be an Eskimo for uh, a day or two. What does retirement look like to you? Mm. Well, I, I, always, I always thought that um, I was never designed to be sort of uh, stagnant or not really doing anything. Um, and so even if I'm retired, I feel like I would be um, involved, um, you know, volunteering in some sort of way, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe even, yeah, maybe going to Africa or, or somewhere third world and, um, you know, trying to, uh, you know, support people, uh, you know, help them, you know, financially or, um, you know, just serve them. Um, and I think I'll probably be doing a lot of maybe like mentoring and, and uh, you know, just helping the next wave of leaders as well. And how do you want to be remembered? What's your legacy? Um, I think, uh, you know, as, a, as, an, as an Asian, uh, you know, American, um, you know, just being a, a trailblazer uh, to, to say that, hey, Asian... Asians can also be um, global leaders, um, but also um, that you can be able to run a company in an, in an ethical way, um, you know, without having to cut corners. And, um, you know, I re that's the real formula uh, for a long sustaining company. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what I would want to um, yeah, be represented as. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of the epic questionnaire with Steve. Sir. So, Steve, thanks so much for spending over an hour with us today, you know, and uh, sharing so much of your story. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, definitely, we got to do another one. Thanks a lot. No, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, this was, this was great. You know, helps me reflect a lot. And hopefully I was able to, um, you know, just help people to, to understand my journey. And um, hopefully it was lightning, you know, for some of you as well. Fantastic. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom that you can definitely share. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you do like this content, please remember to like, comment, subscribe, do what you need to do. All right. And you guys have a great week ahead. We'll see you again next week. Bye.